Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again on our Philia podcast. My name is Sadia Hamid and I'm joined today by Serenity. Um, Hi, Serenity. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Hi. Hi. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself to start off with, please. Um, So basically, I would refer to myself in some sense as a campaigner. Um, In another sense, I would also refer to myself as a domestic abuse and trafficking survivor. I have many hats. (laughs) but in this context I would say uh, a campaigner because that's the purpose purpose of this podcast is to kind of um, you know announce the current campaign that I'm launching um, and to bring awareness to that. Okay okay so what is the campaign what's the campaign all about? Um, So it's a housing campaign centered around women survivors of domestic abuse and also that does come under the banner of any kind of abuse. So whether that be trafficking related, you know, it's it's, it's a broad, a broad umbrella term, yeah. you know, when you say domestic abuse. So I know that sometimes when sometimes when you say domestic violence, for example, people think of a very kind of like black and white um, perspective of what that constitutes, you know, um, which is why I think it was quite important to mention that. So the campaign is basically to bring together a coalition and a collective of survivors to voice basically their grievances and what has happened in their housing cases because across the board there has been so many systemic failings that have taken place uh, when it comes to survivors or women who have fled domestic violence applying for help with housing um, with local authorities and also to note is that we obviously recently had the DA bill go through which is amazing and there was an amendment put through on the DA bill that was pushed by the APPG homelessness group to mm-hmm. include priority need status for survivors you know they managed to successfully make that amendment the DA bill which is amazing it's such fantastic news and it's a much needed shift in in legislation and culture as a whole but I think what now needs to happen to cement that legislation change is a social shift of awareness whereby survivors as a collective have their voice heard of what has happened to us historically up until this point of legislation change so what what is that you know what is that story that that has been happening to survivors? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, on a personal level, my personal experience from mm-hmm. childhood up until quite recent times has been of repeat systemic failings centered around homelessness and housing issues. Mm-hmm. 
where there was a, a complete and utter lack of safeguarding, a complete and utter almost a disdain, you know, from my experience of domestic abuse and trafficking and just basically a failure to recognise that as a visible, you know, issue on one side and also a failure to recognise that as um, reason enough to give me any access to any kind of help. Uh, And how often do you see the same story replicated? I have personally spoken to other survivors who echo sentiments of my own experience you know in a personal capacity and then also in a media capacity and statistics and studies wise you see this mirroring experience just happening time and time and time again because the methods of obstruction that you know gatekeeping that the councils have used and the failures to safeguard are just repeated across the board over and over again, you know. So what are the most common things that you would see in cases of domestic violence or even trafficking or, you know, in in cases like yours where both survivors have experienced both, what are the common issues that crop up in relation to housing with those survivors? So I, I see it as there are two sides almost to the failings that go Mm. on one of them being coming from a position where the councils do what's legally coined as um gatekeeping which Mm. comes under basically ignoring the guidelines around domestic abuse and trafficking when it comes to um homelessness applications so they'll do things like for example ask the applicant to provide them with an endless amount of evidence to prove the abuse or just unreasonable requests you know that are either intrusive or put the survivor at risk of further harm like I heard of one case I can't remember in reference to exactly where it was but I think it was in the media where Mm. Edie had been you know she approached the council for help with her housing and they had asked her to provide a letter from her perpetrator you know, just as an example, which is a ridiculous thing. Like, it doesn't even fathom thinking about that somebody who sat behind a desk dealing with vulnerable people day in and day out would think that it was appropriate to ask a domestic abuse victim, you know, because they're still in that cycle, to go and get their abuser to write them a letter of permission. So presumably at this point, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, either police or social care are involved uh, if it's reached a point, uh, if it's reached a stage of uh, a survivor going to get housing support. Would that be right? I would say that not in every case are social care involved because often, you know, the applicant, she she might not have children, you know, so... There are cases where women are applying as a single applicant and they don't have children, or even if she does have children, it might not meet the threshold for social work to be involved because they do have quite a um, specific threshold to reach before they deem that child as a child in need. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure the exact exact criteria. It, it pretty much comes under if they believe there's a risk to the child if if it if there's 
it's just basically opinion based, you know, so it's down to that particular social worker to deem is there a high enough risk that this child might be at risk of neglect or harm? Serenity, who is responsible for these failures? I feel like it's a systemic issue and that this is something that's not an individual, you know, issue where one member of staff or one particular, you know, organisation or council is single-handedly responsible for what's happening. I mean, for example, the essay that I recently wrote details the history behind the example of my case where I've come into contact with various organisations such as the police, mental health services um, and then housing departments in various councils where I've been treated pretty much with a discriminatory kind of way in, in, in each and every instant that kind of had a, it had a cumulative effect on me because it was, you know, these things, they start off in childhood. And so in childhood, you're almost perceived as a victim, but because you don't fit that perfect stereotype of what a victim should be, especially because I'm a working class person, um, you know, I could never fit into that very simplistic box and so I, I just missed the mark as a child you know so I wasn't given the help I needed from multiple sources and then as I grew up and became an adult that perfect victimhood goal just became further and further away because of course when you're repeatedly failed by a system you know especially as a teenager and a young adult you become incredibly bitter and angry and you become very difficult to engage. And so the issue just becomes even more ingrained. And I think that this is what's happening with yeah. so many women, you know? Yeah, I'm right, actually, because um, you see this quite often with people that have been failed by um, organisation after organisation, when they then are quite hostile to organisations, those organisations think, well, this person's always been like that. They don't factor into the, the, the kind of the picture that they've been failed repeatedly and now they're, they're quite pissed off. Uh, and rightly so. You can't kind of keep overlooking somebody's needs and then expecting them to, you know, come in or singing or dancing and chirpy and, uh, and kind of OK with the fact that you haven't really been doing your job for them. Yeah, and, and also what needs to be recognised, I think, again, across the board, but in this instant we're focusing on housing and homelessness applications, what needs to be recognised and which thankfully is now recognised in legislation, um, but it needs to happen on a social level, is that the onus and the burden of proof should never be solely lying at the feet of the victim. It should be 100% down to the person who is being paid to interview and investigate in a fair manner that particular circumstance. It should be down mm. to them to use their intuition, to use their empathy, to use their initiative to look into something in an individualistic manner instead of just sitting there you know, doing their figures and going, right, well, we've only got a certain amount of housing stock. So therefore, 
you know, what demographic can we strike off, which is what it feels like. It feels like they've sat there in a meeting with managers in various councils and said, right, well, who can we not deal with? I know we'll not deal with domestic abuse survivors because the refuges will pick up the pieces and the refuges will do the work. And again, this just comes down to the fact that there is just constant themes of um, discrimination against women time and time again when it comes to violence against women and girls. It's, it's, it just happened, you know, they talk about this like it's a historical context. When you mm. talk about issues like grooming gangs and stuff, which I'm a survivor of, they talk about this like, oh, this was a, a past issue, you know, it's been dealt with. It's still going on today and it's still happening today. There's still that culture of misogyny within councils, within the police, in the entirety of our system. Okay, so because your campaign's about housing, I do want to kind of bring it back to this this issue and just kind of unpack it a little bit more. You said that in terms of uh, the housing officers that you would be interacting with and the social workers perhaps that you would be interacting with that would be responsible responsible for housing um, a survivor, they think that the refuges are going to pick up that, that slack. Now, one, are they picking up that sack? Two, who are the survivors that fall through the gaps? Because there's a there's a certain risk threshold that survivors need to be at. Um, so which which survivors are falling through the gaps? I think a very large proportion are falling through the gaps because my experience and that of many other survivors that I've spoken to is that you're put in a position when you apply for housing where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. As an example, if you're living with your perpetrator, it's often being used as an excuse to say, right, well, you know, that's something that you chose of your own volition. We're not going to help you until you leave or you go into a refuge. On the other end of the spectrum, if you have left and your perpetrator is still abusing you because that's what they do, you know, they're abusers and that's their MO, you're then told, which is what happened to me, oh, the abuse, you know, it isn't immediate, it isn't current, it isn't occurring now, because right. they fail to recognise um, the cumulative effects of domestic abuse, and they fail to recognise the circular effect of it, where it, it doesn't just happen in one incident, it's a mm. pattern of behaviours, and they just don't see that, they just haven't you know, updated their training or whatever it is. They just so don't recognise that. So you're right, I think that it does sound like there is a lack of training, but there also needs to be a willingness on their part to engage with any uh, any training that you put on because training days are great, provided they're actually listening and taking on board what you're saying, and that's not always the case. But I'm interested in what you said about that you have to leave to get housing. So have you seen instances where women have left and then not got housing? Uh, yeah, that's what happened to me. So my situation personally was that it took a monumental amount of effort on my part. You know, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life to leave my trafficker and then gather enough strength within me to approach the council despite being failed as a child and as a teenager by previous councils for housing and basically lay everything bare and go I need your help 
that took an incredible amount of strength, you know, to do that. And upon doing that, they just completely ignored the element of domestic abuse. They just completely didn't even recognize it. And they just looked at my mental health and they looked at that aspect and they subjected me to the vulnerability test at that stage. It's, it's the, the way that that was set up is that you're kind of, you're kind of set up to fail, you know, from the outset with that test. So what, what are the, what is the vulnerability test? What are they, what are they looking for? Um, so the vulnerability test, I think they've scrapped it now because they've changed the legislation. So I would hope that that's now come into play where women don't have to do it anymore. But what that constituted as is they would compare the applicant to that of quote unquote a normal homeless person and they would then decide whether or not the applicant would be more vulnerable than a normal homeless person but of course it was wide open to exploitation because it was opinion based and there's no criteria to define what is a normal homeless person or what is vulnerable presumably it's dependent on that that worker's knowledge and understanding of domestic abuse if they don't understand domestic abuse then they wouldn't really know if they're they're more at risk as a homeless person completely like because they haven't had enough training um or knowledge and there's no accountability either when it comes to reviewing their progress because they're all about keeping the numbers down the focus is on keep the numbers down we don't want any more applicants and so it's kind of like failings are happening at all angles really you know um, there's not a multi-agency approach with most councils they don't engage the police you know they don't really communicate with domestic abuse advocacy services they leave all of that up to the victim and they say right well if you want to do it you can do it but we're not going to then make it a multi-agency thing is that part of what you're going to try and do with your campaign are you going to kind of raise the awareness within housing organizations and councils to kind of feed into you know multi-agency meetings and and kind of um setups that already exist within the domestic abuse sphere i think that would be an element that would be an, a great achievement to to have had done as as a result of this campaign i think at the heart of it what i'm wanting to achieve is a collective voice of survivors who have previously been silenced systemically mm. who basically say the truth of this is what has been happening to us for all these years and it's not just a case of you know, a one-off women's lives have been absolutely wrecked and destroyed as a result of these failings you know it's actually been gosh like 12 years of my life that I was subjected to repeated homelessness uh, intertwined with trafficking and abuse because no one recognized me as vulnerable enough for help. And all that did was just serve to re-victimize me and create a victim of the system. So what is your message? What is the message of your campaign? What would you like to tell people? I would like to 
personally extend my hand to other women and other survivors that this has happened to the things that we're discussing the things that we're talking about if you recognize any of those patterns of being treated you know by the council if you recognize any of that if the council have placed you in accommodation with you know 200 men in a hostel and you're the only woman there who's fled dv if if they've failed to listen to you or hear you know when you've said that you're at risk and they've put you in danger zones near to your perpetrator if they've failed to even recognize your situation and, and blamed you for your own homelessness and said you you made yourself intentionally homeless if they've done that to you they were wrong it's now mm. recognized law that they were in the wrong and so there needs to be a shift socially and a recognition of that i feel like we need to stand together and very very strongly state that this is what happened to us it was wrong we want something done about it you know yeah i completely i completely hear you so do you have any um any final comments anything that you would like like where can people find your campaign how can they follow you how can they support you if they want to and how can they get involved so to get involved they would well they could they can contact me on twitter on twitter i'm under the um twitter handle serenity rose they can also contact um there's various ways i mean i'm working with an organization at the moment called you my sister and i've just done a recovery i've just constructed a mental health recovery course for women who have just come out of sexual exploitation so they could even go through that that way you know that route contact you my sister and also the law center as well um, that i'm working alongside for this campaign they can go ahead and contact the law center what i'll do because i don't have the website links off the top of my head i can send that through to you if possible for you to just put um underneath the podcast yeah i'm uh, sure that's fine. I want to say as well that although I've been coming across as quite strong <laughs> throughout like this whole talk, I don't want people to get the idea that this is, you know, purely a rage-filled <laughs> conquest, although that is an aspect of it. I feel like what's really important is to voice a victory and an overcoming of, of those obstacles and I'm in a place now where I, I personally have overcome my obstacles and I just feel like, again, I want to extend that to other women and other survivors who may still be going through that cycle and who still may be suffering, that there is a light at the end of it and you can come out of this so much stronger and there's so much more positivity that's going to come out of this. Mm, which is really, really noble. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Serenity, and all the best with your campaign. Um, I, I really wish you the best. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for hearing me as well. Thank you.